Well, good evening. Um, If you could have your Bibles ready, there'll be a little bit of flicking and moving around the chapters tonight. Um, Last week, uh, Trevor was talking about having two chapters of Exodus. He was battling with Chris Bass, who'd had three. As Peter says, we've got six tonight, and we'll do our best uh, to have a look at those. Not every part, uh, but at least a lot of it. Uh, Let's just pray again, and then uh, we'll look at Exodus. Lord, I want to thank you so much that you are a great God. Thank you that you are a God of grace, a God who delights to save people. I pray that just as we look into your scriptures now, as we look into these few chapters and verses from Exodus, we would be struck afresh by the wonders of your grace. We ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. Now, it's sometimes said that you don't really find out someone's true character until you live with them. I wonder how many of you had the rather bizarre experience of being thrown together with some other people uh, at university, either in halls of residence or in some kind of student house. Maybe you rented or lodged with other people. I think at university, either Jules or I, Jules is my wife, uh, experienced the following. The housemate that was always locked in their room. The housemate who hid the washing up in the kitchen cupboards. The over-possessive housemate who labelled all of their possessions and hid them away in their room under lock and key. Or maybe my favourite of them all. The housemate that asked you to leave your bath water in after you'd had your bath so they could share the experience. Not at the same time, I add. Maybe it's actually your family settings, your husband or your wife, where living with someone is very different from being friends with them or just going out with them. As Jules and I were about to get married, we were told that getting married and living in the same house could best be described as two selfish people who naturally want their own way being brought together. Sounds like the recipe for bliss, doesn't it? You might be familiar with the Scouse comic John Bishop. One of his comedy sketches is all about just that the joys of living with your married partner. It starts off just beautiful and rosy, romantic. And then he goes on to say how over the years, things begin to irritate. Things you never really noticed or thought of when you were first living with your married partner. Suddenly, you do notice. So whether it's the lid off the toothpaste. He ends his sketch by basically saying... It's just the way she breathes. Now, as we come to the conclusion of the Exodus story tonight with these six chapters, we are going to discover something quite amazing about God. It's been quite a journey through the book, hasn't it? The story of the remarkable rescue of the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt and the setting up of an establishment of a covenant between God and his people. It's been quite a rocky road. 
many twists and turns. Yet one thing has remained faithful and constant throughout, and that, of course, is God. Exodus is a tale of God's grace towards his people. And here it climaxes tonight with God wanting to move in with his people, with God wanting to dwell at their very heart. And quite remarkably, God knows all about their failings. He knows all about the Israelites' sin, their fickleness. And yet God chooses to come and live among them, to be present with them. And we're going to see that in the same way God knows our weaknesses. He actually knows that we would be the most difficult housemate, the most selfish of relationship partners. And yet, incredibly, his desire is to come and dwell in your life, to come and dwell in your heart, to move in, to be in relationship with you. In fact, the more we get to know God, the more incredible he is. As I said, Exodus is a story of God's grace to his people, giving them what they do not deserve simply because he is a loving and a merciful God. So let's see this grace in action in these final chapters. And I hope that we go away tonight praising our gracious God who gave up everything to bring us into relationship with him. If you've followed this series or you know Exodus well, uh, you may have picked up a sense of deja vu with these final few chapters. That feeling of, I'm sure we've heard this somewhere before. Well, you're right, because chapters 35 to 39 are essentially a replica of chapters 25 to 31 of Exodus. 25 to 31 are the instructions given to the Israelites for the construction of the tabernacle. And chapters 35 to 39 are those instructions carried out almost to the letter. Now put very simply, the tabernacle was the place where the Lord would come down and dwell amongst his people. Therefore, it's quite an important thing. If you think back to your English lessons at school, weren't you always told by your English teachers, whether in a poem or in a piece of prose, if something is repeated, there's reason for its repetition. And the reason was always because it's quite important. Well, here we do have repetition. And the reason? Because it's quite important. Now, although these chapters are similar, Quite a lot has happened in between them, in between these two sections. If you remember, most notably, the golden calf incident, where the people of Israel, having just covenanted to worship God and him alone, as Moses goes back up the mountain to speak to God, they immediately turn and worship a cow, a human, a man-made, constructed cow. They turn to a false god immediately. But the amazing thing is that God does not reject them. Yes, they face judgment, but God still wants them as his people. He still wants to dwell among them. 
In fact, he pours out his grace upon them. The Israelites experience more and more of God's amazing character. And as they do so, they grow in their understanding of grace. And this results in a couple of responses from them seen here in this section of Exodus. So have a look at chapter 35, the start of our section. Because firstly, understanding God's grace leads to the Israelites giving willingly and giving generously. If you look at chapter 35 and verse 4, Moses said to the whole Israelite community, this is what the Lord has commanded. From what you have, take an offering for the Lord. Everyone who is willing is to bring to the Lord an offering of gold, silver and bronze, blue, purple and scarlet yarn, and fine linen, goat hair, ramskins, and so on. The people are called to bring offerings so that the tabernacle and all its surrounds can be built. There are several times here where the people are called to give or to bring. In verse 5, it talks about materials we just read. If you look down at verse 10, what they're required to bring is their gifts or their skills. All who are skilled among you are to come and make everything the Lord has commanded. So they're called to bring both their physical possessions but also their skills and their gifts. And as we read on, we see a quite incredible response. Uh, There's a a phrase that is repeated time and time again. Have a look down in verse 21. And everyone who was willing and whose heart moved them came and brought an offering to the Lord. Verse 22, all who were willing, men and women alike. Verse 26, all the women who were willing. Verse 29, all the Israelite men and women who were willing. There's this repeated phrase, all who were willing. This word willing, it puts an emphasis on choice, on free will. And the incredible response of the people here is motivated by their heart being engaged. Look back at verse 21. Everyone who was willing and whose heart moved them came and brought an offering to the Lord for the work on the tent of meeting. Now this shows that the people here had understood God's grace. They were responding to God's grace. Now, this isn't simply a lesson in we should give more. The Israelites gave loads, therefore we should. That, as a standalone application, would be wrong. Because this is actually a lesson in heart response. This is a lesson in being engaged by grace. It is by understanding God's character more, by understanding grace, that a heart response will occur. So the people of Israel bought their money. They gave their time. They used their skills, their giftings. But what we're told here again and again is that they poured these out willingly. Why? Because they were so moved by God's grace to them. And in fact, their motivation in giving was to secure God's presence among them through the tabernacle. Their very heart's desire was to have God come and dwell among them, to live with them. 
And they were prepared to give everything to secure this. Now, as Christians, that should be our key motivation today as well. A desire to have God come and dwell among us. And a desire to have God come and dwell among other people as well. And it's only when our hearts are won by God's grace that this will happen. When we truly understand that God gave everything for us. When we truly understand the depths of the cross. The cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Where God sacrificed his own son. Where he gave everything for us. Only when we fully understand that God gave us everything. And all we have is from God. King David puts it this way in 1 Chronicles 29, verse 14. This is when the people were being called to give for the building of the temple. David says, But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you. And we have given you only what comes from your hand. Now, if you were around back in the 1990s, you will remember the plans for this building, for the King Center. And I'm sure you will remember there was a great cost involved in getting this place set up. And what followed was the most incredible outpouring of sacrificial giving from the membership. And you say, well, why? Why were the membership prepared to give so sacrificially? I would suggest it's because their hearts were moved by God's grace. The prospect for a center for the community, a desire for God to come and dwell in the hearts of the community, that was at the heart of the sacrificial giving. Now, think about some of the other opportunities you have here or in your own churches. We have a chance to use our practical gifts, don't we? Maybe here at the King Center through involvement in the men's shed, through the sound team, the music group. Maybe recently those people who acted in the Easter experience. A great opportunity to come and use your practical gifts. We have numerous chances to give our time. Maybe through the men's ministry or the women's ministry. Through the Sharing Lives charity. We have opportunities to give our lives, our homes. To provide hospitality. To share meals with one another. To share our homes with each other. There are many, many more I could list. But these are incredible opportunities. And what we need to pray for is a heart response from us. We need to pray that we'd be engaging in these things as a response to God's grace. I think it would give us a whole new perspective on being involved in these ministries and others. But as you and I know, we don't find it that easy to give. There are always barriers or excuses to us giving, whether it's financial, whether it's time, whether it's our lives. 
Why do we find it so hard? Why do we always come up with excuses? Well, this section in Exodus certainly would suggest that it's probably because we don't fully appreciate God's grace. We don't fully appreciate God's grace. So therefore, our prayer for ourselves and for other people should be, we pray that we would get to know God better, to grasp more deeply an understanding of the sacrifice he made for us. And just look at what happens when people are gripped by grace. Have a look at chapter 36, verse 5 to 7. They said to Moses, the people are bringing more than enough for doing the work the Lord commanded to be done. Then Moses gave an order, and they sent this word throughout the camp. No man or woman is to make anything else as an offering for the sanctuary. And so the people were restrained from bringing more, because what they already had was more than enough to do all the work. Now just imagine this announcement next week. I think it's probably got to be David that gives this announcement. David comes and stands at the front next Sunday and says, "Um, please, could no more of you sign up to help with the setup team? And in fact, Gareth has put out a plea, please stop volunteering for the youth work. Please stop signing up to help at free at TKC. Stop it, stop it, all right? And maybe David has to physically restrain people from getting up saying, I want to help, I want to help. He holds them back. That word, they are restrained from giving more. And by the way, while you're at it, stop giving your money. We've got plenty. We don't need any more. You've done enough. You've given all you ever need to give. Stop it. Now this giving of the Israelites here. This is not the giving of someone sat in their living room responding to one of those emotional charity appeals. You know, you see it on the TV and there's something inside you that thinks, I better pick up the phone and pledge some money. And it's normally either guilt or the desire to make yourself feel better. That is not what this giving is. This is giving of hearts that are gripped by grace. Hearts that are responding to God. So we see that grace produces this willing, generous giving. But secondly, we also see that grace leads to obedience. And it also enables obedience. Flick right back to the start of our passage, chapter 35, verse 1, just to set this context. At the very start, it says here in verse 1 of chapter 35, these are the things the Lord has commanded you. And now flick on to chapter 39. Because we come across another phrase that is repeated again and again and again. And it's the simple phrase, they did as the Lord commanded. So chapter 39, verse 1. As the Lord commanded Moses. Verse 5. As the Lord commanded Moses. 
verse 7, verse 21, verse 26, verse 28, verse 31, as the Lord commanded. They did as the Lord commanded. So what's being highlighted here is the obedience of the Israelites. They carry out the construction of the the tabernacle exactly as they're told to. To the point when we get to chapter 39 and verse 32, where it says, So all the work on the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, was completed. The Israelites did everything just as the Lord commanded Moses. Now, this picture of obedience is in stark contrast to what we've seen from the Israelites before. Again, back to that golden calf um, issue. The construction of that, the just blatant disobedience of the Israelites, how quick they've been to turn away from God in the past, how quick they've been to go their own way. But here, their obedience is highlighted. And then in chapter 40, it is their leader, Moses, who has his own obedience highlighted. Again, a list of verses. In, verse, in chapter 40, verse 16, Moses did everything just as the Lord commanded him. Verse 19, as the Lord commanded. Verse 21, as the Lord commanded. Verse 23, verse 25, verse 27, verse 29, verse 32, as the Lord commanded, Moses did. Now, if you just take it on the face of it, this this seems a little bit like, well, if God says so, then we should. When God speaks, we must obey. A little bit like the parent who speaks to their child. The parent who asks their child to do something. And the response from the child is, why? And the parent replies, because I said so. Because I said so. Yes, we we should obey God, absolutely. But this is grace-centered obedience. Not a must, but a want. Not a duty, but a desire. A heart that is captured by grace. And importantly, it is by God's grace that people are able to obey. Not in their own strength. Have a look back at chapter 35. Let's look at verse 30 of chapter 35. Let me read through a few verses. So chapter 35, and reading from verse 30. Then Moses said to the Israelites, See, the Lord has chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and he has filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge, and with all kinds of skills to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, and to engage in all kinds of artistic crafts. And he has given both him and Aholiab, son of Ahimashmach, or Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan, the ability to teach others. He has filled them with skill to do all kinds of work as engravers, designers, embroiderers in blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and fine linen, and weavers, all of them skilled workers, and designers. So Bezalel, Aholiab, and every skilled person to whom the Lord has given skill and ability to know how to carry out all the work of constructing the sanctuary are to do the work just as the Lord has commanded. Yes, God has set the people a task, but it is God who's provided them with the skills, with the gifts necessary to carry the task out. 
Really importantly, God does not ask them to do what they cannot do. It is God that equips them to do the task and to obey him. Now imagine a geography teacher setting a project for their pupil. Maybe a project looking at river variants or the impact of coastal sea defences. But they set the project with no instructions, no knowledge of the issue, no equipment, no support. There's little chance of the pupil carrying that out. In fact, there's no hope. Here, God sets the task of constructing the tabernacle. And it is he that provides the skill sets. And his grace provides the obedient response. So we know that as Christians, we are set tasks by God as his people. So think of one, go and make disciples. Or if you like, pray, go, invite. We are set tasks. But unlike that geography teacher, God gives us the instructions. He gives us his word. He gives us all very different gifts through the Holy Spirit. To each one, different gifts are given. And it is God that provides the support. His spirit dwells in us. And we have each other. So God calls for obedience, but at the same time, he equips us for obedience. And this is a promise to us today as well. So I guess one of the challenges for us is to do with our own gifts, to explore our own gifts. Can I encourage you? Explore them by getting stuck in, by getting stuck into service. Seek opportunities. See what gifts God has given you and use them in his service. And at the very heart of this obedience, as with giving, is a heart captured by grace. This desire to see God dwell in us and others. And right at the end of chapter 39, we see a wonderful result of obedience. Chapter 39, verse 43. Moses inspected the work and saw that they had done it just as the Lord had commanded obedience. So, Moses bless them. And at the end of chapter 40, obedience to God leads with him dwelling with his people. Obedience leads to blessing. It's at the very heart of the covenant that God makes with his people. Now the people's obedience is highlighted here in, chapter, in, in these chapters. But as we turn to chapter 40, There is one more powerful reminder. There's a reminder that we are sinful, rebellious people. But God provides a fully obedient one. Here is the picture. Have a look at chapter 40, verses 1 and 2. Then the Lord said to Moses, Set up the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, on the first day of the the first month. So here is the picture. Moses is called to set up the tent. Moses is called to set up the tent and get it ready for God's presence to dwell, to dwell in amongst the people. The people have done their bit. But now Moses as leader is called for the final preparation. 
This is the bit the Israelites cannot do themselves. Because Moses is the only fully obedient one. Therefore, he is the only one worthy. And for God's presence to dwell with his people, a perfectly obedient one is required. Now, this is a glorious picture of Jesus Christ, isn't it? Only Jesus Christ was worthy to bring God's presence to us. Because he is the only one that has been fully obedient. That famous verse, he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. As we thought at Chessington this morning, it was only through the perfect life and the perfectly obedient death of Jesus Christ on the cross that the great curtain could be torn in two. The way to God totally opened up. It was Jesus' obedient death on the cross that enabled God to dwell in our hearts through his Holy Spirit. To move in and to dwell within us. So grace leads to generous giving. It leads to obedience and provides the obedient one. And then lastly... We come to this great climax at the end of Exodus chapter 40 where we see that through grace God chooses to dwell within us. God ultimately chooses to be with us and to take us home. Have a look at verses 34 to 38 of chapter 40. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and the fire was in the cloud by night, in the sight of all the Israelites during all their travels. This great climax, the glory of the Lord fills the tabernacle. The cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day. Fire was in cloud by night, in the sight of the house of Israel during all their travels. This great rescue story is concluded with God choosing to come down and to dwell among his people, to live at the very heart of them, to be with them wherever they go. Now this is a glorious picture of salvation, of God's saving grace. Because God has seen what the Israelites are like. He has seen them turn their backs on him in an instant. He's seen them turn to foreign gods. He's seen them grumble, complain, stumble, fall, doubt, disbelieve, ignore, blame, forget, to think only of themselves. He's seen what the Israelites are like. He sees what we're like too. 
He sees exactly the same in us. Those deeds and thoughts that Daph reminded of us this morning, those things that we would be mortally embarrassed if other people knew anything. God knows. God knows them all. He knows what our hearts are like. He knows what people we are. And what's his response? God desires to come and live within us. He desires to dwell with his people. Not even our grossest sins can deflect God from his purpose. His purpose to dwell within us. Because he is a rescuing, forgiving God who wants to come down who wants to live in us through his Holy Spirit, to stay with us at all times, to lead us, to guide us. This is our God. This constant, faithful, unchanging God, full of grace. And at the end of this story of Exodus, the Israelites have God dwelling among them, living with them guiding them onwards to the land that he has promised them. God has taken up residence with his people. It's the same truth for us today. This verse from 1 Corinthians 3. Don't you know that you yourself are God's temple and that God's spirit lives among you? And God has taken up residence in order to lead them home. He comes home to take us home. Look at these amazing words from Revelation 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. Now we may be the strangest of housemates with the strangest of habits. We're going to be those housemates that let God down constantly who turn from him in an instant. And yet through his wonderful grace, God chooses to live with us, to live in us. He chooses to call us to be at home with him forever, to take up our promised inheritance. Praise be to God.